Um, good morning. Um, last night I received a note from a friend who um, I first got to know. I was chairing the candidates committee in Missouri Presbytery. Um, this man was a, a candidate for the ministry that I interviewed and worked with and was eventually ordained and is now part of the missions team in Lviv, Ukraine um, that Doug and Masha Shepard lead, um, the missionaries that we support. Um, so this man's name is Kirk. Um, he sent this note. He said, pray for the Ukrainian church this morning. This was sent um, last night, so it was you know, early morning there. Um, as they gather across the country, some with the sounds of shelling or sirens in the background, um, what a chance to show forth the eternal hope we have. Please remember your suffering brothers and sisters as you gather to worship this morning. And um, so I want to do that. I want to honor that request and remember our suffering brothers and sisters this morning um, who um, have worshipped already um, before us um, as it's now the uh, late afternoon in Ukraine. Um, but we should remember that, that we worship um, in union um, with the church around the world today and particularly in the church um, affected by a war today. Um, and so the, the psalm that we're using for our call to worship, and um, we're singing um, Luther's version of Psalm 46. Um, at the end of our service today, I wanted to pray Psalm 46 in its entirety this morning as we start Sunday school. It's an appropriate um, psalm for this moment. Psalm 46, which is on page 802 of your hymnal. <clears throat> God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Indeed, Heavenly Father, we pray this morning um, in the strong name of your Son, who is our refuge and our strength, the one in whom... Um, the city of God is constituted and protected um, and defended by. And we, Father, we do pray this morning for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine, um, as well as Russia, Father. Um, we particularly pray for those in Ukraine today who are uh, facing um, dramatic upheaval in their lives, um, danger to their homes, to their property, to their um, very lives um, themselves, um, and yet uh, we know that they are continuing to gather even this day for worship, um, to praise your name, to proclaim um, the good news of Jesus Christ, um, to offer their petitions. And so, Father, we um, pray for them. We pray that you'd protect um, the church in Ukraine. And we ask and particularly that would be true for um, our friends, Doug and Masha and Kirk and his wife, Anna, and um, all of their team in Lviv. But we pray just generally, Father, um, for the whole church in Ukraine that you would protect and defend them, come what may. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, and just something to think about, this isn't an aspect of the current conflict that is uh, much reported on in the news, but um, there is a religious aspect to this conflict. There was a great falling out between um, the Orthodox Church in Russia and the Orthodox Church in the Ukraine in 2018, um, such that the the Russian Orthodox Church is now, um, as far as, I'm not an expert on the Orthodox Church generally, but 
uh, as I understand it, is now in a complicated relationship to Constantinople, which is where the, um, the Orthodox Church is centered. Um, um, the, one of the things that is very true of the last 10 or 20 years in Russia is the, um, the connection between the Russian Orthodox Church and the nation state of Russia has become more and more intertwined. Um, it's ironic um, in some ways because of the way in which the Orthodox Church suffered so much under the Soviet rule um, um, during all of that time. Um, but um, it's been a big political thing for, um, for Putin has been the, to support and to, to sort of draw in the support of um, the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and so there is certainly a, I mean, it, it even just makes it more heartbreaking what's happening um, between Russia and Ukraine today. Um, not only are many of these people um, connected in terms of family relationships and friend relation, you know, friend, uh, friendly relationships, um, but also there is a, a brother and sister in Christ relationship um, that exists historically between these two nations, um, and so it just adds, I think, to the to the, so the the sorrow of it, the tragedy of it, and, and is even more reason why we should pray for for peace and for a cessation of hostilities. Um, so just wanted to pass that on. That's not something that's talked about. We should, we should pray also for the Russian Orthodox Church to really uh, think carefully about its association with um, the nation state of Russia as it exists. Um, it's, it's very telling that basically every church in the world, <laughs> apart from the Russian Orthodox Church, has condemned um, the invasion um, of Ukraine this week. And um, that's, that's telling, that's significant. And, you know, it's, we could think about other, well, I'll just say, it becomes dangerous when churches get too um, connected to um, the, uh, their political leaders of their, of their countries and, and, and the act, actions of their, their nations. Um, it's a dangerous thing. The church needs to maintain that prophetic witness in the world. Okay, um, <clears throat> Let's move into our topic and, and stuff for today. I have got books for you. I've got, um, I think, about 18 copies. So hopefully there's one for each family group. Um, we can pass those out. Mike, can I get you to help me with um, handouts? There you go. Everybody can get one of those. Let me get one, too. Did everybody get a copy of the book, or is, are we, do we need to order more? Michelle needs one. Anybody else need one? Okay. Well, it looks like we might need to order a few more. I think everybody in the room is today, right now, has got one. We'll order a few more for next week to have to have on hand. Okay. All right. So let me explain what you have, what I've just given to you. So this um, book, if you turn to the table of contents on the first page or second page. Um, so this is a, a book that's published by um, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, and it includes multiple documents. The main document that it includes is the one that we're going to be discussing and studying um, for the next um, probably couple months, um, the report of the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. Let's see that number two there beginning on page 13. Um, that continues to page 105. Um, following that, if you're interested, is a, um, a transcript of the presentation of the report um, to the General Assembly uh, last year in 2021 
which was a dialogue between two of the authors of the report, Kevin DeYoung and Tim Keller. Um, so you can read that. So they kind of explain more about the report and their understanding of it as two of the, the authors of it. Um, then um, there is a text of the Nashville Statement, which was affirmed by the General Assembly in 2019, which is a statement that has to do with human sexuality generally and specifically homosexuality and um, transgenderism. Um, and then uh, five, there's a, an older report, that's much briefer um, and less thorough report that was made um, not by a, the, the whole General Assembly, but by a subcommittee of one of our agencies on the topic of homosexuality. And then um, this is interesting, in the, the sixth document there that's in this book is a study committee that was um, done in 1980 um, by, uh, so, you know, well before some of the current um, arguments or, or debates around homosexuality um, by the RPCES, um, Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, um, which in 1983, that's a denomination that joined with the PCA, merged into the PCA. Um, so um, like Covenant Seminary, where I went to seminary, for example, was an RPCES seminary that became PCA in 1983. Um, but it, RPCES was a um, you know, a fairly significant reformed conservative faithful um, denomination that, that now is part of the PCA. So that, that report is included as well that the RPC, RPCES did in 1980. Um, so it may also be helpful for you to look at um, as well if you're interested in these things. But the main thing that we'll be doing um, the next several months is going through the report of the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. Ad Interim is just from the Latin that means temporary, um, uh, not permanent. So a, a, a committee that was, that was appointed for a, a period of time to study this particular topic. And we'll get into more of what that means, what study committees are and, and um, what their, what their roles, roles are in um, the church, in our denomination. But first, I wanna talk for a few minutes about my background with the topics that we're gonna be discussing, which are human sexuality generally, um, but homosexuality more particularly, um, and then also issues just around gender and sexuality uh, generally. Um, um, so really my own experience with these things began when I was about 10 or 11 years old when my father, um, who had been the director of a crisis pregnancy center in Richmond, Virginia, um, working with um, women and, and um, families um, with, in the context of you know, helping them to, to not feel as though they needed to abort their babies, but to keep them. Um, in the early 90s, my father left that ministry and, and started um, in Richmond a uh, ministry called Set Free. Uh, my dad was involved in the founding of the Crisis Pregnancy Center in the early 80s. Um, and both, it's actually really encouraging to me, just both of these ministries still exist in Richmond. Um, and uh, seem to, I mean, I don't know their work intimately anymore, of course, but their websites seem to indicate that, they, um, that they're doing fine, um, which is good. I'm grateful for that, even for the, my father's um, work and legacy, that um, the things that he did in the 1980s and 1990s continues today. Um, so in the early 90s, my father um, started a ministry called Set Free um, with a board and with you know, others, not just on his own, but um, he was the first executive director of that ministry, um, and it was a ministry that was part of Exodus International, if you've heard of that, um, and it was uh, specifically um, to minister to men and women um, who struggled with um, homosexual attractions, um, same-sex attraction, um, to, to really go and to provide a place for them to come and talk about those things and receive the hope of the gospel um, in that place. Um, if you were an adult um, in the 1990s, um, you know that uh, the world was very different in terms of how even topics like homosexuality were talked about, um, and that was certainly true in the evangelical conservative evangelical church. Um, uh, my impression is that you know either the church didn't talk much about homosexuality at all, or it only did so in very kind of you know um, oppositional terms. Um, shall we say, condemnatory kind of terms. Um, um, and, and so I, I'm really grateful for my father and the, the willingness that he had to kind of enter into this 
challenging ministry space that didn't really exist in the context of the American evangelical church um, in any significant way. Um, and um, to minister to people who, um, who often themselves had, been, had felt rejected or pushed out of um, Christian circles, um, even if they were trying to follow Jesus um, in the context of their struggles. And my father's ministry was very much one of compassion and concern and care um, um, for men and women in that situation. Um, so, so my experience as a teenager was probably pretty unusual for someone born in 1980, at least, you know, um, in that I actually grew up with a con, like my, I knew what homosexuality was, right? And not just, my impression is probably most, you know, kind of conservative Christian parents either didn't talk much about it with their kids or only, you know, sort of, you know, spoke very disparagingly of it. Um, and, um, but that wasn't my context. Um, I understood what the sin was. I understood um, uh, a context for it because there were men, particularly men, um, who got, were involved in the ministry, who had been involved with it for some time, who kind of became, you know, more of a leadership role um, that basically became friends of our family. So I grew up um, uh, in, the eight, in the 90s with um, these men who, this was, you know, part of their, it was not, I talked to them personally about their struggles, but, you know, that was their connection to our family. Um, and they were essentially just kind of friends of the family. Um, and, and those men were, that kind of came through that ministry and, and were um, walking with Jesus. Um, they were kind to me. Um, they were loving. Um, they were supportive of our family. And, and of course, they were really grateful for my father's compassion and concern for them. So I, I grew up, you know, with people with this kind of story in my home, um, at my dinner table, um, going on family picnics together at the park, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, so, so for me, homosexuality has never been some sort of like out there sort of thing. It's always been just this is part of what it means to do ministry and to walk in the church is to, is to love um, those who struggle with these kinds of things, um, who have this, um, yeah, have this struggle. Um, and of course, the 90s were, you know, the, that was when the AIDS crisis was really sort of hitting, um, you know, full, uh, full bloom, and uh, especially in the public eye, of course, had been going on for some time before that. Um, and I, you know, I knew men from my father's ministry who were HIV positive, and um, who, that was just part of the deal. Um, so um, when I went to seminary, I graduated in 2008, got ordained as an assistant pastor, associate pastor in St. Louis, the first church that I served uh, called Providence. And within about six months in early 2009, I um, got involved with a ministry very similar to the one that my father had been a part of. Um, it was called um, First Light um, in St. Louis, and it was a ministry that um, was not only focused on homosexuals, but on just sexual brokenness in general. You know, so they had a pornography group. Um, they had you know, groups for men who struggle with same-sex attraction, groups for women that struggle with same-sex attraction, that kind of thing. Um, but, but I got invited to be the co-leader for the group uh, for men who struggled with same-sex attraction. Um, and, and I took that on and, and was a part of that. So for three years, I co-led a group that met weekly, um, and for several of those years met weekly at our church. Um, none of the men who attended were from the congregation that I served. They were all from you know, other churches in, in St. Louis. Um, but every week, I spent two to three hours with those men, um, listening to their stories, you know, talking about their weeks, um, praying for them, um, so these are all men who, who struggled with same-sex attraction and were there specifically for that reason. Um, uh, many of them were married. Um, they came from all over the Christian denominational spectrum, right? Pentecostals and Catholics and Orthodox and Presbyterian and Baptist and everything else. And they were all attracted to this group because it was a place where they could talk about um, 
the things that they struggled with without, um, without condemnation, um, with not with acceptance in the sense that, oh, that's fine, don't worry about it, but with support, um, with love, with kindness. And, um, and those men, I was looking back this week, I was trying to figure out the timeline of how long I was with that, working with those men. Um, it was about three years till 2012 that I was a part of that group. And just remembering even their faces and their names and um, yeah, it, the, that, Im, that experience to do that every week for three years um, was significant for me, um, even as an adult, to just really enter into that kind of ministry, into that kind of, that world, um, those kinds of struggles. And so I just wanna say from the outset that like this is some of the context that I'm bringing um, to this issue is um, that it's one that I have a deep heart for and compassion for um, those who struggle in this way and, um, and certainly desire the church to handle it well, um, um, to handle it well with wisdom. And, um, and I think, you know, we'll talk about this as we look at the report. I think the report's very helpful in sort of addressing the different kinds of errors that the church can fall into around this issue. Um, and I should say also, I approach this issue, I'm not someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, that's not my story, that's not my experience, but I also want to say openly that I address issues of human sexuality as someone who um, is a sexual sinner. Um, I'm not saying that I have some sexual sin in my life that, you know, is a problem for me being a pastor, or, but I'm, I want to say out loud in this room, and I think it's important for all of us to acknowledge that we approach this issue, whatever our story, as sexual sinners, that all of us struggle, all of us have failed and fallen short of um, the model um, of sexual purity and chastity and holiness um, um, that the Lord Jesus gives us. And um, it's important for all of us to think about that and to, when we come to these topics to rem remember that we all do so um, in need of grace and of healing and restoration and renewal. Um, and also, I want to say I come to this as someone who I think I can say um, has grown in sexual holiness. And so I want to hold that out for you as well, that the, the temptations, even the sins that I, you know, wrestle with um, sexually today are very different than 20 years ago, right? Um, and that's how it should be. That's, that's how the Christian life should work. Um, we should be growing in holiness in all of our lives, including our, our sexual lives. Um, uh, that is an important part of what each of us are called to do, not only to acknowledge that we are certainly sexual sinners as we come to a topic like this, but that all of us um, who are in Christ, the Spirit is dwelling in us, and He is seeking to make us holy. He, not just seeking, He is making us holy, um, because that's what He does. And um, that's what I long for you as parishioners um, under my care. Um, one of the things I long for you is to grow more and more holy in your sexuality, um, in your sexual life. And I, I'm grateful for the way in which the Lord has um, been about that work um, for me. So I just want to put those things on, on the table before we jump into these issues and talk about them. Any questions, any comments, any thoughts? <coughs> about any of that? Nothing? Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's important just for y'all to know that for me this is not in any way an abstract issue. Um, this issue has faces and names and stories and um, is about human beings that I care about. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So um, you're, you're welcome if something comes to you later and you want to ask me about any of what I've mentioned in terms of my background and experience. Um, I'm happy to talk about that as we go. So let's just kind of jump into some, some of the context for what we're going to be doing the next several months as we talk about this. So I think the first thing we need to do is just talk about what is a study committee report. 
Um, so we're going to do just a little bit of ecclesiology here, um, which is a, a topic I enjoy at least, so I don't know how you feel about it. Um, but we're going to talk about it for a minute. So um, it's important for you to have at least some you know, grasp of, of how the ecclesiology works in the context of the denomination that our church is a part of, um, I think. So the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, is what we would call a constitutional church. That's an important distinction in terms of the form of our government compared to other church um, governments that exist. Um, and what that means is that we believe, of course, that Jesus is the head of the church, um, universal, and he's also the head of, um, you know, the PCA fits in there somewhere in the big stream of Christendom. Um, so Jesus is also the head, we would say, of the Presbyterian Church in America. And he governs his church universally, and he governs our denomination um, by his word and his spirit. And of course, the way that works is that the word is the ultimate authority um, that we have as a church in our denomination. And we believe that the Holy Spirit guides us in our interpretation of that word and that Jesus uses the word and the spirit to govern us. And that's important to say that there's uh, only one um, head of the church and that is Jesus Christ. Um, but we do have, and this is why we're a constitutional church, we have constitutional documents which summarize the scripture's teaching. Um, so first we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, these documents that were written in the 1640s that were um, a, you know, somewhat, not very slightly amended um, in the late 1700s when they became part of the American Presbyterian Church's um, documents and still today serve as a summary of our um, theological understanding of what the scripture teaches. And it's important to say that's, that's, the, that's what the standards do for us. Um, they provide in the PCA an authoritative um, interpretation and explanation and summary of the scripture's teaching. Um, so they are not the scriptures, very clearly want to say that, but we do believe that they constitute an authoritative um, interpretation, summary, um, of the scriptures themselves, and that's why they have the status that they have in our denomination. Um, so, so the that part of the the fundamental part of our constitution are the Westminster Standards, um, and every church officer, um, pastor, elder, deacon, in the Presbyterian Church in America is required to subscribe um, to the system of doctrine contained in the Westminster Standards. So we have to. If you're an officer in the PCA, um, you are required, particularly true for pastors in relation to the presbytery, uh, you are required to, um, um, to share any places that you might have differences with um, the Westminster Standards. Um, any places, like you have, so when you have to read them carefully, um, the confession and the catechisms, and if there are any places where you think, I'm not sure this is what the scripture teaches, then you have to tell that to your presbytery openly and say, I'm not sure about this, or I don't think this is right, and here's why. And then the presbytery gets to decide, okay, are you, given the difference that you've just described with the standards, are you still able to subscribe to the system of doctrine in the standards themselves? Um, and so that is, that is, so the Constitution in that sense becomes, um, binding and authoritative, particularly for those who are um, officers in the church, but also in terms of the teaching of our church. Um, for example, if I began to teach something that was um, contrary to the standards in a, you know, I mean, there, there are places where I have differences with the standards, so if I, I can present those differences respectfully and, you know, um, with, with care, but if I began to teach in a way that was, you know, if I began to, to say something about justification that was in conflict with our standards and concerns arose about that um, in the church um, broadly in a presbytery, then my, the standards would be sort of the authoritative summary of the scriptures that I would be held to account to, right? The presbytery could come to me and say, we believe your teaching is an error because here's what the standards say about justification, here are the things that you're saying. Um, so does that make sense? So the standards sort of hold or this, at least they're supposed to work this way, they're supposed to hold both the officers of the church, particularly the pastors, um, as well as um, uh, the, the teaching of the church, you know, together. You know, they give it, give it context, to give it 
fences, so to speak. Um, doesn't mean we can't have disagreements within the PCA about particular points of doctrine, but it, the standards kind of give us some fences theologically that we can't cross and still be in, um, in conformity um, with ordination vows. Um, the part of, also part of our constitution was what's called the Book of Church Order. Um, the Book of Church Order is, there's a difference there. Um, office holders in the PCA, um, pastors, elders, and deacons, are not required to subscribe to the system of doctrine in the Book of Church Order. We're merely required to accept and affirm that it is in keeping with the general principles of biblical polity. So it's important to say that, that our Book of Church Order, which lines out all sorts of things about how um, churches work, how sessions have to function, um, what the ordination process is for office holders in the PCA, um, you know, how you can, uh, you know, if you disagree with something that happens in your, in your presbytery or with your session, you can, you have recourse to, you know, appeal it to a higher court, all of those kinds of things. We're, we don't believe in the PCA that the Bible has authoritatively told us that this is the, this is the correct in absolute way that the church should function, right? Does that make sense? We're just saying we believe the, the book of polity that we've put together is in general keeping with the principles of biblical polity um, and, and biblical church government. And that's an important distinction. So, and it doesn't, and, and if, if you're a pastor in the PCA, no one asks you if you agree with the BCO or not. It doesn't matter whether you agree or not. I, 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 there are all sorts of places where I don't agree with the BCO. Um, in fact, the BCO gets changed almost every year um, at the General Assembly level because people don't agree with it, right? They think it should be changed and made different in some way. Um, but the only thing that you're required to do as an office holder in the PCA in, in relationship to the Book of Church Order is to agree to abide by it, right? You're going to follow, you're going to follow the rules. Um, that there are rules for how the church is governed and you're going you're to follow them. So those documents, the Westminster Standards and the Book of Church Order, um, become the authoritative binding constitutional documents for our church. And so they, they give us um, standards to hold one another to account with, um, and they describe our life together. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be a constitutional church, um, which I'm really grateful, for the record, to be part of a church with that kind of system of government. I think it's really wise and... Um, it's a, it's a, I think a, yeah, I think it's a healthy framework for how to, how to govern the church. Um, and the important thing for you to hear is that those documents that I just named are, are only constitutional standards um, that carry formal authority in our church and govern our theology, worship, and polity. Um, so the PCA is governed by a series of three courts. Um, this is how our denomination functions. We have the session, which is the pastor and uh, the ruling elders of a local church. Um, um, so, you know, the session of this church is myself, um, ruling elders Lauren Clark, Mike Venzel, and Ben Arnold. The four of us constitute the session of this congregation and govern it um, collectively. Um, I, I serve as the moderator of the session, but I, you know, I, I lead and govern the church um, in conjunction with the other um, ruling elders. Um, then the presbytery, um, every session, every church is part of the presbytery and accountable to the presbytery. So the presbytery consists of all the pastors um, in uh, that region, um, in, that de in the denomination. So my membership is not with this congregation and Patrick's membership is not with this congregation. It's with the North Texas Presbytery and that's the court to which we're ultimately accountable um, if there were some moral or theological issue in our lives. And the presbytery provides oversight for the churches. So if there is a problem in a church, um, and this you know doesn't happens with some frequency, as it should, uh, when there's conflict or there's issues, um, sometimes those things will be elevated to the presbytery, and the presbytery has the authority to look in and adjudicate and 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 take care of you know whatever the issues are in the local church. Um, and then the general assembly is. Um, all of the presbyteries in the denomination, all of the churches. Um, it's a national assembly that happens once a year. There are about 88 presbyteries in the PCA. I think there are about 2,500 churches, congregations, I believe, in the PCA. Um, every pastor um, has the right to be a member of general assembly when it meets, just by virtue of their ordination. 
um, and every church has the right to send um, two or more, a minimum of two ruling elders. It can be more if your church is larger um, in terms of the population of the church. Two general assembly. General assembly exercises oversight over the presbyteries, generally speaking. Um, and, and so you have that system of graded courts. The important thing to know about that is that um, the, the, what I'm saying is that each of those courts has the responsibility to interpret the Constitution for itself for whatever issues come before it. Does that make sense? So if our session has an issue with church discipline or whatever, we have to interpret the Constitution and the scriptures to determine what to do in the situation. Um, the Presbytery can't do that for us. The, you know, we can't rely on the General Assembly to do that for us. We have to make those judgments. Now our judgments are accountable to those courts and they can reverse decisions that we make if they think we've erred. But every court in the PCA has a responsibility to interpret the Constitution um, and apply it to their situation. Um, which is important when you start talking about things like study committee reports. Um, study committee reports are not part of the constitution of our church. Does that make sense? Um, they, are, they are distributed to the church for guidance, um, for instruction, um, and in fact, sessions and presbyteries can do study committee reports for that purpose, and that happens with some frequency. But even a general assembly report, like the one that I've distributed to you today, it does not um, contain authoritative governing power within our system of government. And that's important for you to know. Um, it gives clarity, it gives wisdom, um, but sessions can say, eh, who cares, um, essentially, at the end of the day. Um, but it is impo it's important because they, they set the framework and guidance um, for the church. Um, it's important for you to know that the PCA has had general assembly study committees on a number of topics over the years. Um, topics like abortion, uh, creation and creation days, um, divorce and remarriage, uh, paedo communion, racial reconciliation, women serving in the ministry of the church, and a number of others as well. And all of those study committee reports are available online at the link that I have in your handout there. There's a actually very well-maintained PCA history website um, that is a labor of love of a gentleman that I knew in St. Louis who does a he does a great job archiving all of our historical documents. Um, so that's a great resource for you. And and those study committee reports, I think many of them are very helpful. Um, and they're often written by you know some of the most learned men in the denomination at the time, um, and are the product of a great deal of work. And in and, and many ways, the work that can only be done by a group of men, right? I mean, I think you know this, that it's one thing just to study a, a topic and write something that reflects your perspective. It's another thing when you get um, seven or eight um, learned people together and you study it together over the span of a year or so and you talk about it and debate it and discuss it and you come up with something. Um, now, it's a lot more complicated to do it that way, right? It's a lot more efficient for you just on your own to sit down and study a topic and write a, write a book. Um, but all of these study committee reports, and I think this is part of the helpfulness of study committee reports, are the, are the result of collaboration, theological collaboration, um, which makes them even more helpful, in my opinion. Okay? So that's, that's basically a context for the study committee report, um, that, that they don't have binding authority, only the Constitution has binding authority, but they are given as an aid and a help to the church at large um, for pastors, sessions, presbyteries, um, but also just generally for parishioners um, who are working through um, different theological issues and questions. And I, I've read many of the study committee reports that our denomination has done, um, and I think generally they're helpful. But I would say, even having said that, I think this is one of the most helpful. I want to say, I want you to know that. It's part of the reason we're studying this. I think this is one of the most helpful study committee reports that the PCA has ever done. I think it reflects really high level work. And um, when this report was released, um, I, uh, I guess almost two years ago now, um, it received very broad support and appreciation from um, the church, even outside of the PCA. 
think people saw it as a really faithful, orthodox uh, document that describes very well um, what it means, to th how to think about homosexuality, how to think about sexuality in general. Does that make sense? So, okay. All right. Uh, members of the Human Sexuality Report, um, their bios are on pages 100 to 103 in your book if you want to look at it. Um, just go through this really quickly. I've misspelled his name here. Um, it's one P, two L's. Um, Brian Chapel um, was, uh, when I was in seminary, the president of Covenant Seminary. Um, he was my homiletics instructor, took a big class from him, as well as a small, you know, eight-person class where we preached twice and he gave us feedback and all of that. Um, Dr. Chapel is one of the most well-known um, uh, homiletics uh, writers and instructors in the evangelical world today. Um, his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, is a classic and used at many, many seminaries across the U.S. Um, he, after I graduated, some just a year or two after that, he left Covenant Seminary and went and became pastor of a large church in, outside of Chicago. And that's what he was doing when this report was written. He now has become the stated clerk of our denomination, which is kind of the highest uh, permanent role um, of our denomination. He's the kind of face of the PCA at this point, essentially. Um, Kevin DeYoung is a younger scholar. He's about my age, um, who has written a number of books. Uh, he pastors, a, including one on homosexuality. Um, he pastors a church in, outside of Charlotte um, in North Carolina. Um, Tim Keller, you may have heard of Tim Keller. Um, anybody not heard of Tim Keller? Okay, so Tim Keller, um, certainly the most famous uh, member of the Presbyterian Church in America, um, pastor, in New York City, author of many books. Um, interestingly, um, Keller, like other uh, men, um, did not, um, it's really interesting that Keller, and this is, a, I think, helpful for us to think about celebrity and fame and all these things. Like, Keller didn't start writing books until he was in his 50s. I think, you know, like, he had written one book before that, and it was on, anybody know what it was? Diaconal Ministry and was published by our denomination, and, you know, did not have a wide audience, <laughs> shall we say. It's a great book, <laughs> but it, it was not on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and uh, so it was only in his 50s when Keller really began to write um, and to begin to make a name for himself um, and, and become a, a very famous, you know, person and, you know, show up on CNN or whatever, you know, all those kinds of things, which I think is really interesting um, for us to think about, um, even in terms of ambition in our own lives. Um, that he, he and, and Keller is a fascinating guy, if you know his career. He pastored for many years before he went to New York City um, in Hopewell, Virginia, which is right near where I grew up, to very blue-collar, um, um, plain-speaking people, not the cultural elite in any way. And, um, and that was the context, I think, in which the book on diaconal ministry was written. He was also a professor for some time at Westminster um, Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, Jim Weidenmar um, is um, associated with a ministry called Harvest USA, um, which is a ministry um, similar to the one that I was involved with in St. Louis and my father was involved with in Richmond that um, has more of a national profile that, that works to minister to the sexually broken. Um, and then Kyle Keating, or Derek Halverson, is president of Covenant Seminary, um, current, or college, I mean, yeah, sorry, Covenant College, um, another scholar. Um, Kyle Keating, I know Kyle a little bit. He was a Covenant Seminary grad and uh, teaches um, high school at a classical school in St. Louis and um, has personal connection and ministry um, yeah, he was connected to the same ministry that I was um, with in St. Louis, um, so has personal connection. And then ruling out our Jim Pachta um, is a friend of mine. Um, he lives here in um, the Dallas area. He's great. Um, Jim is a wonderful man. Um, he's a licensed professional counselor um, and has thought deeply and worked extensively with these kinds of issues of sexuality. So that's the committee. Yes, ma'am. Great question. 
Yeah, so Alyssa's asking, how is the committee selected? Um, the way it works is that in 2019, this committee was approved um, by the General Assembly and erected by the Assembly um, with specific instructions. Um, and the way it works is that every um, time a study committee is, is, is um, started, whoever is the moderator of the Assembly that year gets to choose the members. So uh, Howie Donahoe, um, who's also a friend of mine, um, who is a ruling elder in Northwest uh, Washington, um, Washington State, um, was moderator that year. And so he, he, um, he chose them. He, he um, usually the moderator is someone who has, you know, broad connections within the church. And I'm sure he got a lot of suggestions and I'm sure he solicited a lot of advice. Um, but he was, he, and it's important to say this, that Howie very intentionally chose men that were perceived to be, with, even within the, the, um, the spectrum of orthodoxy within the PCA. Howie was very intentional to choose a study committee that, res, were, that represented different streams of that orthodoxy. And we're coming to this question potentially um, with different perspectives on some of the, the key questions, um, which I think was really wise. Um, because this is obviously a really sensitive subject, and um, and there are certainly people that had fears that you know um, how he was going to stack the study committee and just put guys of one perspective or another on it, and he really didn't. Um, you know, some of these guys, uh, you know, um, like like Kevin DeYoung, just some of the politics of the PCA. Kevin DeYoung is perceived as a pretty like conservative, you know, kind of guy. And someone like Brian Chappell or Tim Keller are perceived as more, you know, less conservative, just less narrow, less rigid um, kinds of guys. Um, but he, he put people from all of different kinds of perspectives on the committee. Yeah. So that's, that's how the committee was selected and chosen. And, the, the, and sometimes, you should know this, sometimes study committees can't agree. They're not able to write a unified report together. And they have that freedom within our polity. So you'll have a, essentially what boils down to a majority report and a minority report. So you have one report that'll say, we believe these things about this topic um, based on the scriptures and our standards. And, and another portion of the committee will write the minority report and say, we disagree with the majority and we believe these things. And, uh, and that was certainly a risk in this situation, but the Lord was gracious. And they even talk about that in the preamble which we'll probably look at next week, that, that the Lord actually gave the committee a great deal of unity, even more unity than they thought they might have had when they first started meeting together. So there was, no, there was a unified report, which was, I think, really good for the church. <clears throat> any other questions about anything that I've shared? Study committee reports, the context for this discussion, and our, any of those things? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah. So Wendy's just making the point that that it's helpful to know that men like Keller who have very different experience and certainly to minister and talk about homosexuality is a different thing in New York City than it is uh, even in Colleyville, Texas um, or small town America. Um, and it is encouraging to know that, that, that that's part of that perspective is there, yeah. 
Do you have some, Scott? Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, so the, so that's a plug for read some of those study committee reports, which I totally agree with. Um, um, yes, I totally agree with. I absolutely agree with that. I I think that there, I've listed um, the that link that that'll give you PDFs of all the study committee reports that have been written in the PCA. I think, that, for example, like the one on divorce and remarriage, like that's an issue that often we have to think through as a church, you know, what are, what does it look like? What are biblical grounds for divorce? Um, what does it mean to be remarried after divorce? Those kinds of things. It's a really helpful document. Um, if you are someone who has thought um, deeply about creation and how to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 um, in light of um, scripture and um, science and all of those things, um, uh, then that's a great document. Um, the Creation Days report, I think. Um, yeah, there's a number of, of helpful ones. Um, I totally agree. Yep. Anything else? And I should say, I mean, I think the PCA, man, I mean, it's a, you know, we're all, we're not a perfect denomination um, by any stretch. But study committee reports, I think we're pretty good at that, generally speaking. Like it's sort of, sort of like up the alley of what the PCA is good at. It's like working together, getting a group of people in the same room, working through some hard stuff, putting it down in a pretty concise way. That, you know, everybody's got their part to play in the, the Church of Jesus Christ, you know. So um, I think that this kind of thing is certainly one of the parts that the PCA has to play. All right, so um, I suspected this might happen. We didn't get to the preamble today, um, but next week we will work through the report preamble, um, which I've printed for you in the handout. It's also on pages um, 15 to 18 in your, or 19 in your, your book. And um, I think it's really helpful in terms of setting out the context for the report and um, some of the concerns they tried to address. All right. Lord bless you all. Let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for your church. We're grateful for your kingdom. And we're thankful for Jesus Christ, the head of the church. We pray that you grant us wisdom, Father, um, as we think about um, issues of sexuality um, this spring. Um, we're grateful for your word and the way that it speaks to these things, that we're not left uh, just to figure them out for ourselves somehow. Um, but that you speak to us clearly about our bodies and about sex and what it means to steward these things, to be temples of the Spirit, um, to be holy and righteous in your sight. And I pray that you would grant us great wisdom, Father, um, that we would approach these things not as though we ourselves are not also um, sexual sinners and those who need restoration and healing and grace, um, but that together um, we would uh, grow in wisdom even as a congregation in terms of what it means um, to be holy and righteous before you um, with our bodies. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.